Right, g'day everyone, good morning. I've uh, been rushing to get my coffee before I started this. I'm doing it in the morning again. <clears throat> I think I did morning last week as well. Just because I wanted to try and uh, leave my my evening free as I push hard to finish off all this domain search stuff. Let me just uh, tweet the thing. Uh, are we tweeting it now? Are we zeeting it? I don't know. Like, what's the the verb? What's the word? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's all basically the same. It's just got a weird logo. That's going to upset people. It's not fine, Troy. It's not fine because Elon. Uh, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Today I had a bunch of um, a bunch of random bits and pieces, as well as I really want to spend some time talking about the final. The final until go live, at least domain search stuff, because there's there's been a lot of community feedback. In fact, some things in particular that came through after last week that that have fundamentally changed the way I calculate stuff. Super super important. Really really good to get that feedback. So I'm very very happy to have that. Wayne's here. G'day Wayne. Evening for you, um, which would put you probably somewhere in Europe. <laughs> I uh, we'd just finishing up booking all of our European things. We're back to Europe in about, what is it now? must be about four, three and a half weeks or something from now. Crikey. UK, there you go. In fact, we're just booking our UK things. We've got some time in Manchester with Scott, some time in uh, Oxford, <clears throat> catching up with some folks and doing a little bit of downtime, some time in Woking because they make a certain car there, which Wayne might know, uh, and then we're out of there to Spain, to the Netherlands, to Norway, to the Czech Republic. Bunch of work stuff, bunch of fun stuff. Henrik is in Bristol. Not going to Bristol this time. Have been to Bristol before. I don't know workshop in Bristol before. Mark's in Melbourne. Much closer to home. <laughs> it's not quite so exotic, is it, Mark? <laughs> or Simon in Sydney. All right, let's jump into the uh, the mechanical things first. Let's do the sponsor. Sponsor this week, I know off the top of my head, is EPAS from DTAC. Uh, DTAC being a German company. It's one of these companies I have spent time with people from DTAC before as well. I had uh, visits from DTAC folks here on the Gold Coast in this awesome part of the world. Uh, so it was good to see them. EPAS by DTAC. No EPAS password protect. Let's try that again. No, there's no, uh, there's no editing on this show. No EPAS protected password has ever been cracked and won't be found in any leaks. Give it a try. Millions of users use it. Uh, this is Enterprise Password Analytics, the only solution in the world to provide an insight on enterprise password security. Uh, do go and give ePass by DTAC a go. Uh, again, there are real, I know there's real people behind all these things, but it is different when you have had face-to-face -face time uh, and you can actually, actually get a bit of a sense of what people are about, which is nice. Bob, <coughs> Bob says, Netherlands. Uh, yes, we will be in the Netherlands for a bit. The reason we're going to the Netherlands is uh, I used to live in the Netherlands as a kid for a couple of years <coughs> when I was, um, what I was, 14, 15, a while ago now. And uh, I, I really enjoy the Netherlands. I, I enjoy parts of Amsterdam and I particularly enjoy getting further out of, of Amsterdam uh, and, and particularly down to Leiden, for any of the Dutch people here where I used to live. Uh, and I've had a number of trips back there in more recent years. Charlotte, even being Norwegian and having travelled very extensively, has never been to the Netherlands. So this is going to be her first trip. 
We're going to be spending some time in Amsterdam for a couple of days, some time in Leiden for a couple of days, some time with uh, some work things with some cyber people. I'm not sure how much we'll, <laughs> we'll disclose later on, but but so, some some good folks in the Netherlands as well. Uh, no talks or anything like that. Wayne's worked it out. We are going to the McLaren Tech Centre in Woking. I did go there once many years ago with Lars. Uh, must have been like 2016, 2017. Before I could conceive in practical terms of having a McLaren. Uh, and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave my McLaren story until I've, I do the weekly video after that visit because I'm just very interested to see how it goes. But uh, we'll just say well, I had an experience there that I think is what everyone expects stuck-up, obnoxious people selling expensive cars to be like. <laughs> let's, let's leave it there. It was not a pleasant experience. It stuck with me. I'm looking forward to going back, having now bought one, and possibly raising that story. I'll just say that. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Hmm. Bob is from NL. Very good. Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's, um, I, I enjoy Amsterdam as soon as I get away from that really touristy bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, like it's, it's fun to walk through the red light zone and see drunk English people. That's, that is fun. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's just when you sort of get just a little bit more west, you know, like walking distance west of that area and everything sort of feels a bit more quiet and particularly going down to Leiden, it feels – it doesn't feel like a tourist town, right? I mean, obviously, it's a university town in Leiden. But um, the last time I was there, uh, I hired a bike and I rode around a lot and, and it was really nice. And I intend to do that again. I'm hoping for good weather when we're there. So September, hopefully, is not too bad. We'll see. Uh, Marek says, uh, Czech Republic. Yes, so I'm speaking at Experts Live EU, um, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. I have never been to Prague before. Charlotte's been there before. So <laughs> we're sort of going to places the, the other ones have not seen before. So it'll be my first trip to Prague. Really looking forward to seeing that. Apparently, it's an absolutely beautiful city. The event, they're putting a lot of promotion uh, into the event, so I have high hopes for that. Uh, I do intend to go and see Prusa as well, <laughs> the, the printer, uh, 3D printer folks. So I'm very, very excited about that too because I, I do love my Prusa, which is exciting. Now, on the list today, uh, just a, a little thing because I, I asked about this yesterday on Twitter or whatever the hell it's called now. There's still people, I still answer my questions. I've got lots of good answers to this, actually. This is exactly the sort of engagement I've always had for years. I will acknowledge there seem to be less infosec people there. Um, I don't know if that's always a bad thing, too, because there, so a lot of the angry people seem to have gone. And maybe it's just like the dev folks, back to my origins, are still there. But I was asking about uh, what's the, I guess, the, the easiest way to get kids up and running building Python on Windows. And there were some good suggestions. What I ended up doing is just literally grabbing Python from the Windows Store and then using Visual Studio Code. It's got an extension for Python, so it can do all of the autocomplete magic. It's got a terminal in there. It just, to me, felt like the most native, organic way of doing it that would set kids on a path to doing more big people code. <laughs> is that a reasonable thing to say? Now, there are lots of ways of doing it with emulations inside browsers and things, and some of them actually looked really cool. Um, and and it, just to add more context to this, both my kids, Al, who's 11, Ari, who's 13 and a half, 
have been doing lots of code on the likes of code.org, Code Combat, Scratch, uh, anything that's been popular over the last probably six years or something that they, they've probably done. And they're good and they're fun and they think they can code because they've done Code Combat. Now, Ari in particular, both the kids see our our life in in terms of uh, they, they often come to events with us, they travel, they see the really like fun, glamorous side of it, um, and they want to do what we do. You know, Al wants to organise conferences like Charlotte did. Ari wants to write code and and work for Have I Been Pwned. Um and they they of course they see the good bits. But I'm like, mate, you like if you want to do that, you're 13 now. You're like, you should actually be writing like proper code that does stuff, and it's not just like killing dragons and things in code combat. Uh, and I, I want to start giving him more coding exercises that in an environment that that is more consistent with what he would be using to actually write, like I said, big people code. So Python is enormously popular. Uh, so much of what I see about kids learning code is Python-based. It's a very easy way to get up and running. I've written a little bit of Python before. I usually have to Google stuff, but yeah, it's, it's all the same sort of constructs and ideas, right? It's just syntax that uh, that's different. So I want to get him up and running with that. And then I, I want to sort of start to do, just like take him through, I know there's so much online stuff you can learn, but I want to give him specific exercise, specific goals. And, you know, maybe it's like FizzBuzz one day. Uh, many of you will know what FizzBuzz is. Another day, maybe it's like, okay, well, you now need to actually integrate the Have I Been Pwned API. You know, so you're going to have to learn about what JSON is and about HTTP requests, uh, headers, bodies, responses, all the rest of it, and take them through that path and get him to start building stuff. Several people made the comment in response to that question yesterday about building code that make things work, you know, that does stuff. Now, we have a house full of stuff you can code against, right? So there is no shortage of things that you can do. And I'm gonna talk about things, I'm gonna actually unbox this Home Assistant yellow in my hand a little bit later as well. So there's heaps and heaps of opportunity for the kids. And my kids, and I suspect your kids as well, for folks out there with kids, in this same industry, I reckon they have an unfair advantage because they've got parents that live in this world that with a very, very small investment can get up and running, building stuff that that could be massive one day. I, I still, and I kid you not, on a weekly basis, I say to the kids, like, this is so amazing that I can come and sit in my office and I can write code with some pretty simple tools and put it out on the world and everyone, anyone connected in the world can go and use it and it could be really, really big one day. And you can do that with basically nothing more so now than ever before. I'm still excited about writing code. Hmm. Okay, now, that was the code thing. Let's talk about data breach. I'm mixing it all up a little bit. Magic Jewel Adventure. Now, I'd never heard of Magic Jewel Adventure before, but I got up yesterday morning and someone said, here is the Magic Jewel Adventure code, or, or <laughs> code data. Here is where it's been posted to a hacking forum. Good luck. And I looked at it and I went to the website and I just had that feeling of, I'm not going to be able to get a reply from anyone. This is going to be painful because it's usually painful. And I hate doing this. I hate doing disclosure. Anyway, I got to do it. So I fill out the form. And normally I'd sort of fill out the form, the contact us form, and I'd give it a little while and I'd get no reply and then I'd tweet. But I was so convinced I wouldn't hear from anyone. I tweeted at the same time. Does anyone have a security contact at? Now, for my Twitter subscribers, or whatever we call them now, Zitter, 
subscribers, ex-subscribers. For those folks, uh, so they're the ones that pay a few bucks a month. I do share a lot more detail there. Uh, nothing I wouldn't be okay with having gone public, but it is a more, it's a much closer audience. Uh, so they, they get insights. I know some of you who watch this are on there as well. Now, I, I shared a bit more detail there, and, and someone actually found someone from there on Twitter. He said, um, you know, look, this guy here, I won't name the guy because I don't know if he wants to be publicly associated or not, but he, he said, look, uh, in, in terms of discussion we had, this guy here um, is connected to the service. And I went to look at this guy's X profile, let's start calling it X, and he followed me. I was like, oh, sweet. This, this could be easy. I DM the guy, and he, his words were something to the effect of, you know, hey, how can I help you? If I'm hearing from you, it's probably not going to be very good, is it? So, no, sorry, mate. No, look, it's, it's not very good. But to their credit, within, I'd say, about an hour of me making contact, there was a statement up on their website. It was on the forum site. Now, that's, that's record time. It was a basic statement. Like This is not high watermark for data breach disclosure, but it was an acknowledgement. It gave me something I could link to. So I got that data loaded, I think, in record time from knowing nothing about the site or the service, no disclosure, them not knowing about it, through to disclosure, notice on their website, data loaded and have I been pained. I think the entire thing would have been about three hours turnaround. So I was very, very happy about that. 138,000 people in there. Something like 86% of them were already in have I been pwned, which is just a massive, massive crossover. I have a long, long list of other stuff, including things I got sent even last night that are not going to be as easy, that I have to work through. I just, I don't want to, I, I didn't even really want to do the one yesterday until I'd finished all of the other domain search stuff because I am working to a schedule. I'm going to explain that at the end of this video. But that one was very easy. So thank you for everyone involved in that from the from the subscriber who gave me the contact through to the the person at Magic Jewel Adventure. Uh, that was that was exceptionally well handled. Well done. Home Assistant. Home Assistant Yellow. I thought I'd actually unbox this here as well. Um, this has been sitting on my desk teasing me the last couple of days. It's like, come play with me, come play. And I'm like, no, I've got to finish the code. Now, all I'm going to do is un unbox it. Scissors. Uh, I do not feel that I can go down the path of trying to set this up now because time disappears so quickly with Home Assistant. <clears throat> now, just as I said that, as I've seen Richard say yay for yellow. So yeah, mate, it's, I know you, uh, you have one of these and you recommend it. James says the restore process for Home Assistant is a disaster. They don't even tell you whether you messed up your password for backups. You get no feedback, so you don't know if it's doing the restore. Uh, now, this is why I'm leaving it until a little bit later. George says still need my CM4. I have a CM4. I'm going to talk about this in a sec too. Um, Wayne says, uh, I had thought regarding your existing Pi, could it be overheating? So... The, the, the backstory here was I have had a Pi 4B for, I guess, about three years ago. I set Home Assistant up. It's been really reliable. It runs on a micro SD card. I had no problems. And then a couple of months ago, say every four days, it just became unresponsive. Now, it runs on, on PoE for power, so I could go to the Ubiquiti switch. I could power cycle the port and it would come back up. But I just kept having this issue. And even some of the... 
uh, some some of the little that there's a monitoring integration. And I know there's something native within Linux as well that can do this, where when it becomes unresponsive, it can restart it. Even that wasn't able to, uh, I guess, resurrect itself. Uh, anyway, so it's kind of like all right. That's a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, path of least resistance. Just go and get another SD card, which I did. That didn't solve the problem. But also three years ago, and I set this up, first of all, I, I had a very, very simple infrastructure here in terms of having really nothing connected. My dependency on it was very low. An SD card in a Raspberry Pi was fine. But the problem is, as the thing has gotten larger, many people have said, look, you really want to be looking at an SSD, preferably an NVMe SSD, uh, something that is, I guess, much more heavy duty and more orientated towards the sort of stuff you want to do with it. Uh, plus, of course, we've got Matter stuff coming up. So having a, a, a piece of equipment with Matter support, which this has, is going to be quite useful. And it's, I guess it's just the evolution of my HA environment. And I'll give you one really good example of how I'm using this in a very, very good way lately. Something that's made me very, very excited and very happy. I've mentioned on multiple occasions about a lot of opportunistic theft in this area. And I, I feel like I'm actually going to do a blog post on this one day because it's so analogous to InfoSec where it is it is the weak reused passwords of the houses here that people keep breaking through. Now, and what I mean by that is people who left their car running in their driveway. We had one the other day where a car was stolen and it, like this is super brazen <clears throat> and this is not victim blaming either, but everyone's got a bit of responsibility. So <clears throat> in a little WhatsApp group for the neighborhood, someone said, she had driven out, she'd forgotten she had to return a library book, she drove home, parked in her driveway, went into the house, someone stole her car while she was in there. And there's video of it. Uh, you know, car goes in, someone runs in like right after her, jumps in the car, drives away. Now, she didn't say it, but obviously she left the keys in the car, if not the car running as well. And it's that sort of stuff. It's doors that are left open, garages that are left open. Things that we can partially solve with automation. So one of the things that, that I've, in fact, the, the whole reason I went down the automation route to begin with was I wanted to be able to open and close our carport door by talking to my watch. Now, we actually have two doors. We've got a carport and a garage. So a carport, by my nomenclature, is... It's an outdoor area. The sides are open. You can access it by jumping over the fence. It's not a high secure area. Garage, a different story. <clears throat> so the garage, inside the garage is everything from the server rack and all the bits that, that run all our home infrastructure through to what is now the whiskey bar, <laughs> whiskey and gin bar, through to tools and all sorts of other things. It is a secure area. I don't have any automation on that door. In fact, when I wrote my five-part IoT series, I said, look, part of deciding what to automate is to try to re reduce the risk of something like inadvertently opening a door to somewhere that is sensitive. So that's not automated. Carport door is. But when you're driving in and out a lot, and I just heard Charlotte drive back then because one of the kids forgot something, so she had to take it back to school. When you're driving in and out a lot, opening and closing the door does become a bit of a pain in the ass. So one of the things that I got working over the weekend, which I should have done ages ago, is <clears throat> if that carport door is shut, and either Charlotte or I drive home. Now, we all know what it means to drive home, but how do you measure drive home? Well, the way you do it is the device is in a mode of driving. So Home Assistant recognises whether you're walking, whether you're driving. I think there's a couple of other states as well. 
So if it recognizes that you're driving, and incidentally, I'm not sure exactly how it does it. It's not just when you're on CarPlay, because we've got CarPlay in our AMG, but not in the two other cars. Uh, it's not necessarily when you're on Bluetooth either, because I think it does it when you're in someone else's car. So I assume it's using accelerometers and GPSs or something. Anyway, when you're driving and your state changes from away to home and the garage carport door is shut, it will automatically open. And because of where we've set the boundary around home, it's timed such that we drive up, I can see the door is shut, but just as we get to the driveway, the door starts coming up and it's up by the time we drive in. But I get to see that it was shut and I get to see it opening and I get a little bit of excitement every single time I drive home and just see the door automatically raising. Love it. That is exactly what I wanted Home Assistant and all this automation stuff for. Let me look at the comments, then I'll open this. Simon says, the only thing stopping me using HA in my home is redundancy or lack of it. Well, the, the, the redundancy is the physical switches, really. You know, when I wrote this five-part series, one of the first things I said is that everything needs to work without the IoT. For the most part, it does at home. I mean, the, the garage doors or the carport doors, for example, it still has remote control. It still has physical buttons on the motors. Uh, you, you can still open and close things without it. So it it... it the IoT needs to add and not take away from it. Wayne says, uh, mine runs uh, PO, I think you mean POE rather than POW, they're different things, <laughs> on a UDMSE and SSD. Uh, it did it once, so I put it down to a bug that release, possible. Yep, you figured out the POE thing. Marag says, read kids in programming, been thinking about teaching them Docker. Have a K3S Raspberry Pi cluster running HA, Docker would make spinning up whatever environment. That's true, that's, I mean, that's another thing that's really popular now. James says he had a pie like that, I assume like mine. I had to smart switch attach it for a while to do reboots. Yeah, which feels a bit shit really, doesn't it? Um, when you're getting to that point. TMOC says, uh, Troy, how much time and money you spend on home automation? Do you think there's a net benefit to your life? To me, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> I think there's a large benefit for having an uncomplicated life and a clear mind. Well, I've got far from a clear mind, but that's got nothing to do with Home Assistant. I just think about too much stuff. Uh, the, the answer to your question is that it is, for me, and I think for many people doing this, it is not just about how do I automate the home. It is that there's this little bit of geek inside us which enjoys tinkering. Now, if that's not you, you definitely don't want to go down a Home Assistant route. I get pleasure out of playing with this stuff. I get pleasure out of seeing just things like temperature stats. Uh, you know, this morning we got up and Charlotte said um, uh, she was quite cold in the room. Now, she's got a bit of a cold at the moment, which both the kids have had too. I'm curious to pull the data and see, was it actually cold in the room or was it just her just being a little bit unwell? Um, in terms of how much money I've spent on it, I, I would say it's, it's definitely, so this is three years worth of doing stuff with hundreds of devices, it would definitely be in single-digit thousands. It would not be double-digit thousands. Now, keeping in mind, we've done a lot of renovations in that time as well, which has cost a substantial amount of money. So the IoT bit is, is effectively nothing. It rounds to nothing. Because things like these Shelleys and things that are on the desk here, I've got, what is it, I think 70 of these or something, and they're about $30 a pop. You know, that, That's probably where the, the bulk of the money has gone. So there's a couple of thousand dollars. Um. Most of the stuff, okay, I mean, this, 
The Home Assistant Yellow wasn't too much. The CM4 I had to pay premium for because they're very, very hard to get. Again, we'll talk about that in a moment. Most of the stuff you get for IoT is really cheap. Now, I don't include things like when we've redone the kitchen, we've got new MLA appliances, everything is IoT enabled. That's not in my single-digit thousands <laughs> cost. We had to get new stuff anyway. So a lot of the things we're buying that are connected have IoT anyway now. That's just the way it is. But I'm, I'm sort of looking around me going, you know, like the key lights here that are brightening everything up. That's, they're IoT enabled. Uh, I needed key lights anyway. Um, what else is around me? The Home Assistant runs on my phone, on my watch. The Sonoses plug into Home Assistant. So a lot of the things are already internet enabled. Uh, most of what we spent the money on is a combination of obviously the the hardware for Home Assistant, which really you can do very cheap. It can just be a Raspberry Pi. It can be 100 something dollars by the time you put a Zigbee dongle in it as well. It's the Shelleys and it is the lights that are IoT enabled. And most of our lights here are not. They're, they're dumb lights with smart switches. But even then the lights, like the ones in my ceiling here, they're, uh, I think they're about $30 each. Now these are Aussie dollars too. So that's about 20 American dollars. So no, I, I haven't really spent that much money. I have spent huge amounts of time. But again, trade is a hobby. Lots of people do hobbies and just for fun. <laughs> Look at it that way. James says, for me, the time I spend is part of the benefit. There you go. I enjoy the journey and solving the problems. Although there are automations that are very beneficial to me. You know, my garage door example just now is a great example. I, I love, particularly as we've put so much effort into designing this house and making it beautiful, and I do have a blog post series coming on this as well, I love the fact that at the right time of day, the right lighting modes come on. And it just makes the place feel alive and cosy. And then I get up in the morning and it's a different lighting mode. And it's enough to make my coffee and everything, but it feels like a really nice way to start the day. I love, yeah, when we go to bed, there's a button we push and all that stuff turns off, but there's other stuff up here that's on. It, it enriches our life without doubt. Andrew says, thing is, re, uh, what's to do a task or function? It's like having James Bond tech in your home. Uh, so I'd say it's really cool. If you could always sell that to Apple. Uh, Wayne, I think he's 100% agreeing with me. Geek playing. I made a bad sensor using ESP32. When I got into bed, the lights go off after 30 seconds. Now, this is the thing. Like, you do you do have issues. Uh, now, mind you, they're not all home assistant issues either. As I open this up. Uh, this morning, Charlotte was saying, why can't we dim the lights in the kitchen? Uh, and that was the physical switch that was the, the problem in that case. So, uh, Marek says, there's one issue though, if you get hit by the proverbial bus, who maintains it for the family? Well, first of all, not my problem. I'm dead. Uh, i got other things to worry about then. I have often wondered, like if, and we have no intention of doing this, but if we sold this house and we moved somewhere else, <laughs> what about like the 70 Shelleys that are in the wall? So, well, Nothing. Like I could just leave them. Could they're cheap enough that I think the cost of getting an electrician to remove them would probably be more than the cost of just buying new ones for the for the new place. So um, I'd probably just leave them because the switches still work, right? That's fine. Okay, let's talk about this. Home Assistant Yellow. Now, just a little bit of background. I'd say that the probably one of the most common ways of running Home Assistant is on a Raspberry Pi. So you go and get like a Raspberry Pi 4B. Everyone knows what they look like. Hundred something Aussie dollars. 
You install Home Assist on that, you plug it in your server rack. I had a PoE hat on mine, so I could just plug it straight into a PoE-enabled port on my Ubiquiti switch, uh, and it's job done. And then I bought a USB dongle for Zigbee, and that was it. Now, there are lots of different ways you can do this. You could have a Docker container, you could run it on there. You can have an x86 machine, you can run it on there. Home Assistant, a little while back, created a Home Assistant yellow device which is what we see here in the box. Now, the, the idea here is, to, I, I guess, it's almost like a reference architecture, right? So it's like, this is the device which we think is sort of a, a good solid implementation of, of the hardware for Home Assistant. In here, I should be able to pop the cover off this. It's got little, little gold screws on the bottom. Let's just skip the instructions. <laughs> we'll just go, I won't plug anything in yet, but we'll have a look at what's actually in here. So we should be able to pop this open and we'll have a PCB in here. There we go. All right, so this is what we have inside. In here we have a space for an NVMe SSD. So there will be an SSD which will, uh, which will go into here. So that will, uh, that will be all of our, I guess, persistent storage there. Uh, we have a space in here to mount a Raspberry Pi. There is no processing unit on here yet. You need to have a CM4, Compute Module 4 Raspberry Pi. Now, when I bought this, I had to buy it without the CM4 because there is a worldwide shortage of CM4s at the moment. If you pay enough money, you can get one. Now, when I say enough money, this wasn't ridiculously stupid, but it was a couple of hundred bucks to get a CM4. I think from memory this was an 8 gig CM4. I got it off Amazon somewhere. Amazon or eBay or one of those things. Um, what do we got in here? This is the Compute Module 4. We've got a little heat sink. Comes with it like that. And then our actual Raspberry Pi CM4 is going to be this little unit here. So this will need to be installed into here. You can actually see where they're going to go together. And then I'll boot it up and I'll just restore my existing Home Assistant and everything will be fine. First go. <laughs> I'm optimistic. <laughs> so uh, that is the plan. Now, my hope is that between putting... What else we got in here? We've got yet another Cat6 cable because I've got a gazillion of these already. We've got another heat sink in here, which looks like it's also a heat sink, I suspect, for the CM4. Actually, that looks like that heat sink. It's got some mounting points for it just there, so that might be a better option than the heat sink that came with the CM4. And some thermo tape here and some little connectors. So hopefully that's just going to plug in. It's going to pretty much work out of the box. We'll, uh, we'll see. A couple of USB slots here. Obviously an Ethernet jack. That's going to do my PoE. This is a PoE-enabled um, unit. I really like PoE for two main reasons. One, less power cables running around. Two, I can remotely power cycle it via toggling the power on the port of the switch, as I've been doing at the moment when it's, uh, when it's gone south. So I think PoE is a, is a lovely thing. Let's see the comments on here. Let's actually put this back together without screwing it up. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Um... Richard says, I have sold this house with the HA yellow included. The handover process uh, 
is going to be interesting. Yeah, I imagine the documenting your house is. Um, I guess it's, it depends on who you sell it to. Like if it's if it's one of us, that that's fine. I, I'd be excited if it was me inheriting a house. This stuff. If it's other normies, then, <laughs> then probably not. Not so much. Wayne says my plan is to move to one of those when I can get a CM4. Yeah, and that's. Uh, that is the problem, isn't it? I don't know when those stock levels are meant to even come back to normal as well. George says, uh, top of line CM4. I'm trying to remember. It, it was, I think there might have been one higher level. I can't recall. But to be honest, this has become such a critical part of our home. I sort of took the view that I'm going to, if, if I throw an extra 100 bucks at it, for argument's sake, and I, let's say I get another three years out of it, which I've just done with the Raspberry Pi, then that's a good investment. I'm quite okay with that. And I've got Home Assistant stickers as well. Happy days. That's cool. I'm excited about this. As soon as I can uh, devote the time to doing this properly, which is going to be next week. It's not going to be before next week anyway. I'll give it a go. Uh, Richard says, by the way, that is exactly what happened for me. I backed up my entire HA Blue, restored it off the yellow, and we're off. Okay, well... I've heard mixed stories because I've, I've also heard some people say they reckon the Zigbee in this sucks. Um, I don't know. We'll find out. I assume I could still use the existing Zigbee dongle I've got if it's an issue. I also have a lot of Zigbee in the house, a lot of powered Zigbee, which should do a lot of repeat or does do a lot of repeating at the moment. So hopefully it's right. James wrote a blueprint for Home Assistant. that sends me notifications when the pie I want is in stock. <laughs> it's in the share your blueprint section of the Home Assistant community. That's cool. Richard's uh, new house owner is quite excited. It's nice. George says, stock levels of CM4 normalizing. I think I read Feb 2024. Uh, I'm sure they're still out. Well, they're obviously still out there because I got one. But it's, I assume it's one of those sort of supply and demand things where you're just going to you're just gonna get a little bit stung in the short term if you do that. Marek says, I recall a house on Grand Designs that came with a QR code from the builder to a website that documented everything about it, plans, maintenance, schedule, etc. I would hate to have to document this house. I think it would be, be a nightmare. I don't have the time for that. All right. Let's talk about domain searches because this has been the, the big thing that has consumed so much of my year. And I, I feel like as I've gotten closer and closer to this weekend where I want this to go live, it's just consumed more and more and more time. So in these videos, particularly over the last few weeks, I've been sharing more about how this domain search will work, how I want to price it, what will be included with it, and I've had really, really good feedback. Uh, I'll give you, just as the sort of quick recap first, domain searches in Have I Been Pwned are used extensively. There are hundreds of thousands of domains regularly being monitored. More than half the Fortune 500 is using it to monitor their domains just about every big brand I can think of has got a presence there, uh, which is fantastic. I'm very happy about that. They are an expensive exercise. Querying the data out, everything from the amount of time the functions take to the amount of memory they use to the egress bandwidth. And I was finding that it was just getting a more and more costly thing. And I kind of went, Let, let's pick Pfizer as an example, because I spent so long there, 14 years at Pfizer now, I forget exactly how many billion dollars they're worth. Let's check. Uh, Pfizer market cap. They've probably done even better after the last few years. Uh, Pfizer market cap, they're at $197 billion. So I would argue 
that if you're worth $197 billion <laughs> and you want to pull data out of have I been pwned across a workforce of tens, if not, are they hundreds of thousands of people? I don't know. I think it is reasonable to pay a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of money for that. I also think it is reasonable if you're much smaller than Pfizer, but you are still a commercial operating company. Further, I think it is reasonable that most people don't pay anything at all. So the, the, the rationale that I had used is let's, uh, let's look at all the domains we've got. And I think there was like 270,000 domains that are, that are being, uh, are, what's the right word? Are being, have been queried. I have to check exactly. Certainly have been queried on have I been pwned. Uh, let's take those 270,000. We're going to make the first 60% of them by volume. So this is by how many breach accounts I have on them. Totally free. The last 40% would divide into roughly four equal groups, and then they get four pricing plans, pretty much analogous to the ones that are already there for the API key. And then this would run as one sort of set of products, and then the API key would run as one set of products. And then Brendan said, why don't you just make it all one product and you bundle it in together, which was a brilliant idea because it took away a huge amount of work and gave me a bunch of code reuse and I think simplified things. So that was great. And then I was talking about how I wanted to, I guess, distribute these domains uh, with the sort of the 60, 10, 10, 10, 10 and make it based on the number of breached accounts. And a bunch of people got in touch with me and they said, don't have a problem with the idea of paying for it based on size, etc. However, my domain has a lot of breached email addresses that never existed and they're in there primarily because of the online spam bot data breach. Now that had over 700 million records in it. One person that contacted me said, look, my domain is showing 40 breached email addresses. There's really only 13. If you take out the spam stuff, someone else had over 300. Their domain had over 300 breached addresses on it. If you took out the spam one, it had zero, like literally zero. And just pulling some stats here to, uh, to try and um, put some proper shape around this. So what I was worried about, I, I, I could sort of pragmatically say, well, whether they're real addresses or not. And incidentally, what's a real address? Uh, you would say, well, a real address is an address that has a mailbox, probably that belonged to a real person that actually worked for the company. But for me, when I get a data breach, an email address is a string, and it's a string that conforms to a pattern, and that's it. I don't know if there's an account behind it or not. All I know is it is in that data breach. And the only way that I can even go through and actually figure out whether the address is real or not is I would have to send an email to that address to all... 5 billion of <laughs> the addresses I have and get them to click on a link to prove. So obviously that's not feasible. So you, you could sort of take the very pragmatic approach and say, well, look, these are addresses on domains and they sit there in storage. They're returned with the queries. They have all the overhead and the cost, etc., of doing that. My concern was is that it would quite rightly piss a bunch of people off. Now, I'll put it that bluntly. If it was me in one of these guys' situations and I could no longer query my domain for free because some spammer had gone through and made up a whole bunch of aliases, put them in a data breach, and now I can't query have I been pwned anymore because there should be zero or even 13, I'd be pissed. 
And I, that's not what I want. I do not want people being pissed at have I been thrown. Like, this is not the goal. So someone actually, one of the, the, the folks who, who was emailing me, phrased it really well. He said, look, it, it, it would sort of feel like you're getting screwed twice by the spammers, right? <laughs> it's like once because you're on their spam list and they're sending you junk. Uh, and then again, because that's counting towards your allocation, have I been pwned? And now you've got to be pushed into a higher pricing tier. So ultimately, the, the, the decision was kind of easy. You just take out everything that's a spam list. There are 11 spam lists and have I been pwned at the moment and they account for about 1.4 billion of the 12.5 billion records in total in the system. Uh, so it's, you know, like a little over 10%. It, it doesn't really materially change much in terms of, of uh, the way the whole thing would get built and priced. What it does change is that so many of the domains that would have been in a commercial tier or high commercial tier slip back down. So they slip back down to something lower. Now, just to sort of give you a give you a sense, a week ago I was talking about this, and it was fifty. You know, let, let's uh, no, we don't need a decimal place. It's just too accurate. It was fifty six percent of domains had ten or less breached accounts. When I've gone through and done all of the numbers again, it's now fifty nine percent. So there's been. 3%, 3% of accounts has just slipped down into what would ultimately be a free tier. Because what I've said is like 10 or less breached accounts on a domain, you can still do everything that you used to be able to do before. So now we're 59.1%, I'm rounding it to 60% just to, <laughs> just to make it easy to explain. So that was a very, very small change. Uh, and then the other higher uh, options. So there's then the, there's a tier which is like 11 to 25 breached accounts, 26 to 100, 101 to 500, and then over 500. All of those sort of just slip back about one or two percent each into lower tiers. So what it will mean is that people will obviously still need to pay as soon as they've got more than 10 breached accounts on a domain, but it's going to take longer before they have to do that, and then it will be less because there'll be in a lower tier. I hope that, that kind of makes sense. Uh, that was an easy decision to make, a harder thing to implement because I had to go back through every single domain which has been searched, which as I said, there's like 270,000 or something that have previously been searched in Have I Been Pwned? And there's a whole bunch of other ones that have been, um, been queried separately uh, via some of the enterprise services and things. Had to go back and requery every one of those, and next to every time I'd sort of stamped this is account, I'd also now need to stamp this is account excluding spam list. So that's taken a, a bit of work. Obviously, just redoing some of the logic about when does the pricing and everything kick in, when can you sort of query for free. There's a UX piece which worries me a little bit, which is uh, I've got a, a test domain. I've got I think I called it like Have I Been Pwned Integration Test dot com or something. Bought the domain. <laughs> I've got an example there where I've got 10 breached accounts in actual data breaches and one of them in a spam list. And what's happening in my UX at the moment is on my domain search dashboard, I'm showing 10, but then you do the search and it shows 11 because one of them is in online a spam bot. And I'm just trying to just tweak that UX a little bit just to be extra, extra, extra clear because I don't want people being confused or disappointed. 
So what I've done at the moment is you search for it and it says 11 and then in brackets, or, or there's a little asterisk and then down the bottom there's a footnote and it says, you know, like 10 in non-spam uh, breaches. So there's there's that. There's, there's another thing as well, but I want to look at the comments first before I go further. Um, I'm going to skip past the Raspberry Pi stuff. Uh, Ben says, I was thinking about this where there could be a scenario where everyone ends up in a paid tier. I guess if every single domain in there had 11 or more breached accounts in one breach, well, fr frankly, I'd have other problems even loading that. But, yeah. James says, I'd love to know what your estimate, uh, I'd love to know what you estimate are the number of unique email addresses. I don't have a clear answer for that simply because of the way table storage is structured. And in fact, even just then when I was saying I had to go through and search the domains again in order to put counts. Table storage in Azure is a very, very simple key value pair construct. Uh, you have a partition key, which I use the domain name for, and you have a row key, which I use the email address alias for. Now I can pick up a partition and return all the results, and then I can count them. But it's not like SQL Server, I can just do like a count star, and the data just sits there and it does the processing within, within the database engine and returns the results. It's very cheap. It's very fast. I'm amazed at how well it's scaled because I've never had a single problem, even going from like 155 million records to 12.6 billion or something. But it's very simple. So if ever I want to be able to do any sort of aggregations fast, I, I need to store that data somewhere else. So what I started doing during the year when we we're sort of leading towards this, this uh, commercial domain search thing is every time a domain was searched, I took the number of results and I added it to a record on a SQL database. So I still have a relational database. I've got a SQL server there. Every domain that gets searched has an entry there. And every one of those domains has a count, which is the number of breached accounts. By adding another column, I then had to go through and populate that, hence all the researching. Uh, ben says, be cool if we could stick, if we could stick it in a GraphDB. Have I been posed nearly a decade old? I'm amazed table storage has kind of <laughs> lasted as well as it has. It has blind spots, particularly the disaster recovery situation. It, it has to evolve into something else. And that's, that's something we're looking at. Uh, it may be Cosmos DB in Azure. I had even considered, do I just chuck it in a relational database? Old school. I, I feel the cost of that would just be astronomical though. Rack says, does that mean if legit email addresses end up in spam lists, they're not counted either? Yeah, it means that. But let's sort of be clear about when it's counted and when it's not. If a legit email address is in a spam list and only a spam list, it's not counted. If a legit email address is in the magic dual data breach and a spam list, it's still counted. So effectively, the logic says, just give me all the addresses that are in a data breach, not classified as a spam list. So when you sort of see 700 million email addresses in online a spam bot, uh, I think mine is one of them, but I'm in a bunch of other uh, data breaches as well. So it doesn't sort of exclude that because I'm in those other places. Now, there was one other thing, and just tangentially, this is not just code. <laughs> like there's, there's obviously code that needs to happen. There's all the Stripe configuration. There's a bunch of other uh, infrastructure configuration that likes of Cloudflare. There's also a bunch of legal stuff which saps my soul and my wallet, mostly around terms and conditions, privacy policy, uh, 
and a bunch of other things we'll talk more about in the future to make sure that we line up all of our ducks and we're doing this the, the, the best way possible. We've had to completely rewrite the terms and conditions for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one is because we're doing a bunch of new stuff. So the existing terms and conditions are great, but they don't cover domain searches. While we're in there, and it's KPMG rewriting all, all of these things for us because they, they did everything from our normal financial accounts through to they ran the, the thank God, failed merger and acquisition of 2019. <laughs> They've been So they do all of our, our legally things. Uh, so they've gone through and done that, and they said, look, while we're in here, you really should have much clearer terms and conditions for public free users. So we expanded it to cover the free users as well. So now, whether you're using have a pwned just chucking your email address in the box on the front of the website, or you're buying an API key to query email addresses, or you're doing the domain search thing, there's one set of T's and C's, covers it all. There's also a much more robust privacy policy, the final version, which landed in my mailbox this morning, and I've got to read. So all of that goes in there as well. Lawyers at KPMG are not cheap, but they do a great job. And part of the reason we're using them is because they're a global organization. They're in the best position to help us make sure that we satisfy as much of the world as possible. You'll never make everyone happy, but we've done our best with it. So all of those have got to go back in. And because we're changing the T's and C's, we also need to email every single subscriber who has an API key at the moment. So that's going to be a bunch of people that get emails, I think probably on Monday. And where did I get to? I know where I was going, and then I end up talking about terms and conditions. I'll go back to where I was going. So <laughs> the spam list. Spam lists get excluded from the calculations. There was one other thing when we were speaking to the KPMG folks, they said we've got to be a bit, a bit cautious of, which is, the domain creep situation. So here's the way that works. Let's imagine it's troyhunt.com and I go and pay my $3 something. It's going to be $3.50 for the next 60 days because that's what the existing API key is and it's going to be $3.95 US. I pay that. I've paid my $3.95. Let's say I've done it for a year. I've paid $35.00 and I get 12 months, $35, which means I can query a domain with up to 25 breached email addresses. And then to the point that James makes, just I think it was James, said, uh, you know, there's a, there's a massive data breach and a whole bunch of new stuff goes in there. And suddenly troyhunt.com is no longer, let's say 20 breached email addresses, but it's 30. And it's crept, domain creep, into another tier. What happens? Now, the advice was, and I really strongly agree with this, you don't want to have someone take out a subscription and pay money to crew their domain, let's say for a year, and then a couple of months in, you can't query it anymore because it's too big. So we've implemented a model where when you either purchase your subscription or if you have an existing subscription, when you add a new domain, that domain gets pegged at that size until the subscription renews. So what it means is, is that if I go and buy a subscription for uh, the entry level, which will give me up to 25 breached email addresses, and I've got 20, my record says right up until the point one year from now when this subscription renews, I'm guaranteed to still be able to search that domain in the tier that I have. A year from now, when it renews, then you're going to need a high tier. 
So it will give, there's probably a couple of upsides to it. Give people confidence that when they pay their, you know, $35, for example, in this case, that is still going to work the whole way through the subscription period. It also gives them a little bit of incentive to lock it in for a year. Because if you lock it in for a year, no matter what happens to the domain in that time, you're still guaranteed to be able to search it. If you lock it in for a month, well, you know, a month from now, maybe your domain's grown and you're still going to have the domain creep problem. I know there's still going to be people who probably get pissed about it, but this is sort of the nature of organic growth and the fact that we're going to keep getting pwned in all sorts of breaches. So that's the that's the other thing there. In fact, I've got to make that clear in the blog post today, the draft blog post. Uh, James says, I love that model. It's extremely fair to the user. And without trying to be all altruistic about it, <laughs> this has been free for like nearly 10 years. If we err on the side of giving more away rather than less away, we're still from a financial perspective well ahead of where we've been for the last decade anyway. So I'd, I'd much rather be conservative in, in the way that things are priced and the way it's structured than to be aggressive. Uh, we, we just, just simply, there's, there's just not a good reason to do that. M money's not a good reason. Uh, not, not to risk the goodwill of the people. So the, anyway, there'll be incentives to do that. And of course, uh, as I said last week, in 60 days, we will pump those prices up between about 13 and 15%. We've got to give all the existing API key subscribers 60 days notice. So there's almost like a double incentive uh, after this goes live, hopefully on Sunday, double incentive <laughs> to go through and, uh, and grab that one year worth of subscription at whatever scale it is that you want. So there's been a, just a, a huge amount of coordination on this. Now, like I said, it's the code, it's all the configuration. We've got to go through and redo a lot of the knowledge-based stuff uh, that, that exists in the Zendesk portal. We've got to get the email ready to send to all the existing subscribers on Monday. My thinking at the moment is that I've, I've pretty much wrapped up all the code and I'm just in a massive testing mode and tweaking mode. That'll happen over the rest of today, tomorrow, Avo. Uh, and then Sunday, I'll, between you and I, just silently <laughs> push it out first thing Sunday morning. Uh, and then if nothing goes really bad, I'll probably push that blog out first thing Monday morning, my time, which is a terrible time for getting eyeballs on it, which is exactly the point because I want it to go out to the smallest number of people. And then I've got all the Monday to answer questions, uh, fix stuff, tweak things. And hopefully it's okay because there's a hell of a lot of work gone into it. So that's the thinking. I'll, um, I'll just reiterate again, it, it has been enormously useful having folks provide feedback on the things I've been discussing here over the last few weeks. It has fundamentally shaped the way this thing uh, is going to work uh, for, for the betterment of, of everyone, our, ourselves included, because there's going to be less angry people. If I had to push it out without that feedback about the spam list, a bunch of people would have been pissed off, and I'm sure that we, we probably would have had to make this change anyway. But by getting your feedback and being able to do it in advance has, uh, has just massively helped. So thank you to everyone that has been listening to this and sending the feedback. You still have time. <laughs> if there are other things you think of, please let me know. And I think once I push that blog post out in a few days from now and you read the whole thing, there'll probably be more feedback. We will probably continue to tweak it and evolve it. None of these things are static. But I really hope that by the time I get to sort of Monday, that, that the work is done and we just let it sit there for a bit and then I can go and play with Home Assistant and, and blow time mucking around with my, my new yellow and my CM4.
Okay, folks, I'm going to wrap it off there. Wrap it off, wrap it up there, because I do want to go and finish all the multitude of tests I've been writing for this uh, and the actual documents and <laughs> boring stuff. Has to be done. Catch you next week once there is a live version of the commercial domain search stuff. See you, folks.